It's April 1694 in Southampton Square, now known as Bloomsbury Square in central London, where a young Scotsman, a man about town called John Law, the son of a goldsmith and banker, is about to fight a duel with another young man, one Edward Wilson. At this point, Law is a beau, that's B-E-A-U, not B-O-W. He's immaculately dressed, good-looking, and quite a ladies' man, according to Janet Gleason in The Moneymaker, her biography of Law. He was also a gambler, an activity that helped him gain entry to the salons of the elite, who at this point were obsessed with gambling. He actually wasn't a very good gambler. Indeed, he had to be bailed out by his mum at one point, something that may have stood him in good stead later by obliging him to take a more considered, more professional approach to the activity. At the time, while dueling was common, it wasn't actually legal. That didn't stop people, though. The assumption was that either the law would wink at any casualties, or, if it didn't, the king would pardon the killer. In this case, the first part didn't work out. There was no winking. And shortly after the duel, the winner, the young Mr Law, found himself in Newgate Prison, charged with murder, and Edward Wilson entered the history books. Although Law pleaded that the duel was an affair of honour, he was tried and sentenced to hang at the end of the month. The king duly pardoned him and then left on campaign. The deceased Wilson's outraged family then managed to block the pardon, alleging that the fight had been over money, and Law remained in jail on death row, this time in the King's Bench debtor's prison. This was a jail that was notoriously easy to escape from, and James Buchan, in a recent biography, reports the bewilderment of senior government figures that he didn't actually do so. However, he finally took the hint and escaped towards the end of 1694, probably with the help of Duke of Ormond, one of King William's favourites. Amid an outbreak of smallpox that carried off Queen Mary, during the winter cold enough to freeze the River Thames, he disappeared. Hello, and welcome to part one of The Life of Law, series one, episode two of the Boom and Bust podcast. My name is John, and I'm grateful to you, dear listener, for agreeing to lend me your ears for about a half an hour. This was originally intended to be a single episode, but as I researched it, the thing took on a life of its own, and expanded beyond those boundaries. Therefore, not wishing to abuse your hospitality, I have split the episode into two parts. Now, on with the story. Today, I want to dive into the first of three linked booms and their subsequent busts. The booms are related because they all occurred during the 18th century as nations attempted to replace outdated and ineffective, even moribund, financial systems with structures more suited to the world in which they found themselves. This was a world in which international trade was expanding as communications improved. Uh, Populations grew in spite of the best efforts of warmongers and plagues, and new markets opened up. In Europe, the centre of attention was shifting from the eastern Mediterranean and southern Europe to the Atlantic and the more northern nations. 
The final shape of the new world across the Atlantic hadn't yet been settled, and efforts to grab the biggest part of the pie were causing friction among European powers and resentment among the colonists. Those same European powers were embarking on imperial adventures designed to cement mercantilist trading positions. Mercantilism, much in vogue in the 17th and 18th centuries, is based on the view that the trade I do with India, let's say, takes away from your potential business there. It's a zero-sum view of the world that holds that my gain is your loss, and it leads to protectionism, tariffs, regulatory barriers, and ultimately probably war. There was a growing middle class of merchants there were professionals and artisans who were seeking to exert control over monarchs who were still fighting each other in the pursuit of dynastic rights. The way the newcomers did that was through control of, or attempting to control, the purse strings, taxation in short. This was important because at the beginning of the 18th century, the governments of Europe were feeling the effects of the incessant warfare that had blighted their people for centuries. They were mostly broke, and nursing huge piles of debt. The problem was that the costs of fighting had grown exponentially since the late medieval period, as the technology employed improved, and standing armies manned by professional or mercenary soldiers had become an expensive requirement. And the list of wars that racked Europe during the 17th century is an extremely long one, depressingly long. But to give you a flavour, here are a few of the bigger ones. Between 1618 and 1648, there was the Thirty Years' War, mainly fought between France and Spain, but plenty of other countries were dragged in, too. It might be more accurate to say that it was the Habsburg dynasty and friends versus everyone else, and it was a monster. It was the most destructive war in human history until the 20th century rolled around, bringing with it industrialised slaughter. Historians estimate that in some areas of Central Europe, mostly in Germany, the area that was most devastated by the fighting, more than half the population may have been killed by the lethal combination of fighting, famine and pestilence. The death toll was overall probably in excess of 8 million people. The English slugged it out against the French from 1627 to 1629, and then embarked on multiple civil wars, the first of which took place between 1642 and 1646. The English civil wars ended in 1651, and by then Oliver Cromwell was already getting up to no good in Ireland, busily slaughtering the population there and planting the seeds of future misery. That was from 1645 to 1653. The Portuguese and Spanish went at it between 1640 and 1648, and as soon as that was over, the Spanish took on the French in a struggle that only ended in 1659. Between 1652 and 1674, there were the Anglo-Dutch Wars. The French got involved against the Dutch in 1672, and that only ended in 1678. The Nine Years' War, in which Louis XIV of France took on a coalition of the Holy Roman Empire, the Dutch, Spain, England and Savoy, took place between 1688 and 1697. Just to add to the misery, the 1690s were the high point of the Little Ice Age, a period of cold and damp that hammered crop yields across Europe. 
the Great Famine of 1695 to 1697 may have killed anything up to 25% of the population of present-day Scotland, Estonia, Finland, Latvia, Norway and Sweden, plus another couple of million in France and northern Italy, according to an article by Jan de Vries, a historian at Columbia University. The Europeans then saw in the new century with another big one, the War of the Spanish Succession, 1701 to 1713. It's estimated that as many as 1.25 million men may have been killed in action in that conflict, which first underlines how effective armies had become at slaughtering each other, and second, that populations had become large enough to support that level of loss of life straight after a calamitous famine without actually collapsing. But let's turn to the first of our three financial revolutions. They all featured booms followed by busts. One was mismanaged and failed catastrophically. Another was basically a swindle, and the third was a success. But while the scam had limited fallout and didn't completely derail reform, the fiasco was a genuine attempt at modernisation, whose failure ended up setting back the move to a more modern financial system by a century or more. The success story, which came 70-odd years later, is barely remembered today. The central character in the fiasco is our friend, the Scottish murderer John Law. When we left him, he had escaped from prison as a condemned man. Of necessity, given that he was on the lam, we don't really know much about where he went. In his biography of Law, James Buchan notes that, logically, Law would have gone to Amsterdam, home to many exiled Scots. However, it's also possible he went to Scotland, which was where the family of the murdered Edward Wilson thought he was hiding. Alternatively, the Duke of Ormond may have hidden him on his estates in Ireland. There's also the possibility that he actually stayed in London and got engaged to marry, or even married, it's not clear, under an assumed name, the love of his life, Lady Catherine Knowles. Be that as it may, the Nine Years' War with Louis XIV's France ended in 1697, and travel to that country became both possible, it was no longer high treason to visit, and easy. Law and Catherine show up in Paris at about this time. However, by 1702, the English were back at war with the French, dragging France inexorably toward bankruptcy. And in October 1702, Law became a citizen of The Hague in Holland, where his son William was born in 1706. Before becoming a father, in 1704, Law wrote... An essay on a land bank, and in 1705 published a short book called Money and Trade Considered with a proposal for supplying the nation with money, in which he set out his thoughts on that subject and on the management of the economy. Uh, many of the ideas contained were strikingly original and for the time were quite radical, although today they're commonplace. The central thesis of Money and Trade is a proposal to issue paper money to stimulate economic activity, liberating the money supply from the supply of monetary metal, which was volatile because of the influx, or otherwise, of precious metal into Europe from the Americas. 
The Scots actually considered using his ideas to dig themselves out of the financial hole they had fallen into as a result of their unsuccessful adventure, trying to set up a new world colony. That was called the Darien Scheme. The Scottish elite were unconvinced by Law's ideas and opted instead for union with England, which happened in 1707. Law, who according to Gleeson was in Scotland at this time, could see this coming and had to flee, though apparently not before he relieved one Sir Andrew Ramsay of an estate worth £1,200 at the gambling tables. It's important to note that Law's ideas, though radical for the time, are not those of a crank out there on the fringes. They've been borne out in the modern world. In 1954, Joseph Schumpeter was unreserved in uh, praising Law. Quote, he worked out the economics of his projects with a brilliance and, yes, profundity, which places him in the front ranks of monetary theorists of all times. End quote. It's also noteworthy that the world's money didn't fully end its links to gold until the 1970s, and there are still people out there who aren't happy about it. The ideas in Law's short treaties were to form the basis of the so-called system that would define his career and lead first to his elevation and then to his downfall. In 1706 or 1707, Law travelled south to Genoa, Christopher Columbus's hometown, where he was to remain for the next six years and where he used his skill at gambling to make a small fortune. Not a big one, but a fortune nonetheless. On the way there, he passed through Paris, according to Buchan. He was under sentence of death already, so the prospect of another, this one for treason, might have been less worrisome to him than to most. The trip and some surviving letters show he'd opened up channels of contact with senior French figures in the elite, and these were to become significant later on. Law was someone who intuitively understood probability and possessed the sort of talent for maths needed to feed that ability and to exploit it to its limits. He was a natural-born gambler of the sort that casinos hate and of an ability that in the modern context would get him banned from the casinos he'd frequented. For our story, the most important thing about Genoa is the financial institution it hosted. This was the Casa delle Compere e dei Banchi di San Giorgio, the Bank of St. George, one of the foremost financial institutions to have emerged from the Middle Ages. Founded in 1407, with a legal persona distinct from its members, and uh, as such a forerunner to the modern joint stock company, the bank was given the task of consolidating the huge debts that Genoa had run up with uh, its wars with Venice. How did this work? Prior to the founding of the bank, Genoa was in the habit of giving its lenders the right to charge customs duties on grain, wine, salt and other necessities to secure their loans. These rights were known as compere. As Buchan points out, this was a form of interest payment, but since it varied from year to year depending on harvests and the like, it wasn't usury and it didn't therefore incur the wrath of the church. In 1407, the compere were consolidated and broken up into shares in the Bank of St. George, each of 100 lira face value. 
These shares could be bought, sold, inherited, whatever. They were basically transferable bearer certificates. Moreover, and this was what law liked, because the value of the shares fluctuated according to the duties that could be extracted from imports of staples, any shortfall in the yield from taxes fell on shareholders, Hooray! not on the state and not on the poor. In other words, those best placed to bear a loss, wealthy shareholders, took the loss, sparing the state and the citizenry. Along the way, the bank also ran a primitive banking business, taking deposits from individuals and institutions. Account holders could therefore settle their debts to each other using entries in the Bank of St George's ledgers. This idea had already been borrowed by the English at the end of the 17th century. King William of Orange, a Protestant Dutch royal brought in by the English elite to replace the uncomfortably Catholic James Stuart, in a sort of invasion that turned into a coup. Well, he was fighting the Nine Years' War against Louis Fourteenth. To pay for it, he essentially mortgaged the government's tax income. The government borrowed the then enormous sum of £1.2 million, paying 8% interest. This was to be funded by taxes on imports and duties on wine and spirits. In return, the lenders incorporated as the Bank of England and gained the right to take deposits of gold from the public. The new bank was also allowed to print banknotes as receipts for the deposits, and the deposits were lent to the king. The notes, backed by gold, were literally as good as gold, and far more convenient, and soon became a generally accepted new currency. The fact that the English were able to fight and win almost all their conflicts in the coming century may have been down to the nation's martial spirit, but it was also because it was in a position to fund its wars and pay the troops without bankrupting itself. Others weren't so lucky, as we shall see. In 1712, Law and his family were back in The Hague, where he bought a posh house for about 4,000 guilders, or about four times the price of more modest, but still very upmarket dwellings. He set about honing his credentials as a master of probability. At the time, the Dutch, of course, were broke, and in order to raise money, they decided to offer a lottery in two draws. The first for 3 million guilders with a prize fund of 1.83 million guilders was to be drawn in early December. Initial take-up wasn't great, and along the way, the generality, effectively the government, had to sweeten the terms. It became a good deal for the punter, and actually became a great deal. Law took out a newspaper advert offering to insure buyers against drawing a blank. Punters could pay him a premium, and in return he would cover their losses on the lottery. Buchan, his biographer, does the math. If Law insured the entire lottery he would receive a premium income of 150,000 guilders and have to pay out 116,000 guilders, a gross profit per contract of more than 22%. A second 3 million guilder lottery was to be drawn at the end of the month, and Law offered to insure that as well. Law played the lotteries on his own account too, using borrowed money to buy tickets and winning at least one large prize. 
But by late 1713, Law had moved to Paris, taking with him some large amounts of money, a lot of experience in finance, and a deep understanding of probability. In the French capital, he set about getting to see Nicolas Desmarts, controller of King Louis XIV's finances. That was not an enviable position. Louis had an unfortunate fondness for going to war, spent huge sums on the army and on his own palaces and court, and generally leaked money in all directions. He also had to deal with a massive bill for the expensive annuities that had been handed out, both by himself and earlier monarchs, to settle old loans. On top of that, there was a large class of office holders who had bought official positions and had to be paid and couldn't be dismissed. Taken with the annuities, the bill was about 90 million livres a year, Buchan reports. As if all that wasn't bad enough, there was also a second class of IOUs consisting of promissory notes issued to fund Louis' endless wars to a total of 900 million livres. These would cost another 50 million livres in annual interest payments if Louis actually started to pay up. But until he did begin to pay, he couldn't borrow again. And on top of that, until Louis started to pay, his creditors, most of the merchant class, were out of the, were out of the game. And that brought trade to a standstill. There was just no money. And just to make a bad situation worse, the nation's tax system was terrible. It was full of privileges and exemptions, and as a result, the rates were punishingly high on anyone who was unfortunate enough to have to pay tax. The dire situation the French were in gave Law his opening, and the French authorities expressed interest in his proposals. The sheer oddness of the situation bears underlining here. After all, you're Louis Fourteenth, the Sun King, Europe's preeminent monarch, the absolute ruler of the region's largest country, and, despite a broke government, its richest. And here's this Scottish adventurer, under a sentence of death, no less, in his own country, offering to clear your debts at a stroke. And you're listening? Louis, or rather his advisers, were indeed listening. Law proposed setting up a bank modelled, it must be said, along the lines of the Bank of England. The new bank would issue receipts for deposits of coins. These receipts, banknotes, would be accepted as payment for taxes and the like but their use in commerce would not be compulsory. At a time when the government debt was trading at a deep discount, the bank would also take deposits in the government's IOUs, these were called billets d'état, but would credit the holders' accounts with the full value of the note, rather than the paltry 40 or so percent you could get, and if you sold it. So if you had a note saying, Louis owed you 1,000 livres, say, you might be able to sell it for 400 livres in cash. Alternatively, you could put it into your account at the new bank and be credited with 1,000 livres. But before Law got the final go-ahead for his proposal, on the 1st of September 1715, Louis died. His heir, Louis XV, his great-grandson, was only five years old when Louis shuffled off this mortal hole. The Duke d'Orléans, a friend and supporter of law, became regent. Orléans inherited some truly disastrous finances, and, as we'll see, attempts to make them better actually 
tended to make them worse. That's often the way with these things. First off, Orléans Fire démarré and installed the Duc de Noailles as head of the Finance Council. Noailles took a look at the books and didn't like what he found. His summary was bleak. Quote, We found the estate of our crown given up. The revenues of the estate practically annihilated by an infinity of charges and settlements. Ordinary taxation eaten up in advance. Arrears of all kinds accumulated through the years and allocations anticipated of so many different kinds which mount up to such considerable sums that one can hardly calculate them. End quote. The terrible state of the country's finances breathed life into radical proposals to sort matters out. Law's ideas fit that bill, but his opponents, including existing bankers who feared the competition, delayed approval. Nouet, meanwhile, adopted some more conventional measures. These included haircutting bondholders, slashing state salaries and pensions, and devaluing the currency by half. These are all things that keep getting tried and don't work, but they get tried again when a state gets into a mess. Here, the result was inflation, plunging prices of government bonds, widespread economic distress, and a dramatic demonstration of Gresham's law that bad money drives out good. That's because you devalue a metals-based currency by calling in existing coins, which, which contain some amount of gold or silver, say, in them, and then you reissue them with rather less gold or silver in them. People who own the original coins, therefore, hoard them, with the result that the amount of money in circulation falls, there's less money around to do business, and it deepens the distress. And, of course, crime soared, as the newly destitute did their best to stave off disaster. Then came the infamous Chamber of Justice, which wasn't a chamber and wasn't just, but whatever. Uh, Noed set this up to punish the people who were supposedly responsible for the mess and to recover some of the money. Punishments were fearsome, to say the least. Running from a fine to being broken on the wheel, which was not very nice, taking in hanging, mutilation and service on the galleys along the way, which was basically a slow death sentence anyway. And uh, the uh, piece de résistance, as they might say, was uh, that whistleblowers were rewarded with a fifth of any proceeds recovered. Uh, naturally, this opened the door to false allegations as wives denounced husbands, envious neighbours reported the folks next door, lovers reported awkward spouses, and so on. Potential victims of the chamber also fled, taking with them any hard currency they had or in any case sought to stash it abroad, reducing still further the amount of money in circulation. And of course, the supposed remedy didn't really work. At that point, Law's idea started to look as though it might be worth a try. Orléans, who had other things to think about, as well as the nation's finances, was a strong supporter, and as regent his voice counted. The Duc de Saint-Simon was among the few to raise his voice to oppose Law's ideas. He pointed out that the temptation to over-issue notes would be a major problem, adding that in an absolute monarchy in which the king was above the law, the system was very much 
open to abuse. And Law never really adequately replied to these uh, glaring deficiencies. Nevertheless, <coughs> Law's Banque Générale received its charter and went into business in 1716. This was the start of Law's ascent to the dizzying heights he eventually achieved in French politics, and it's where we'll leave him for the moment. Not to give too much away, but his note-issuing bank quickly helps provoke an enormous boom, followed by an equally astounding bust that leaves the state on its knees. Law, having gone from hero to zero in the blink of an eye, has to flee France. But that's for the next episode when we'll chart the subsequent career of the Scottish gambler, author, economist and murderer who ascended about as high as you can go in an absolute monarchy and then fell so dramatically from grace. Thank you for listening and if you haven't already, you can subscribe on all the main podcatching services. Any reviews will be gratefully received and eagerly read. Thanks also to Clive Carroll, whose piece, All This Time, supplies the musical backing to my rambling. Join me next time for the second part of the John Law story.